Well, would you bow with me in a word of prayer once again as we dedicate our time to the Lord. Father, we are thankful that we can be here this morning once again together to study Your Word. We're grateful that You give us these opportunities. Lord, we do not want to take them for granted and abuse the time which You have sovereignly and graciously allowed us to be together. And so we ask that You would attend to our time, that You would take Your words, massage them into our hearts, that we might be like Your Son, Jesus Christ. That others might know You, that they might see and hear from us the Gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation. We ask this in our Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, I'll ask you to take your Bibles this morning with me and turn in them to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. I said to you last Lord's Day that this would be the final in our series that we have been dealing with on apostasy. We have been speaking in this section what happens when the church is affected by apostasy or when the church embraces apostasy. And this morning, I want to deal specifically with this whole reality of deception and how it is remedied in the Christian life. Deception and how it is remedied. We all know that deception is rampant in our world. It is all around us no matter where you look. And if it is entertained in any kind of way in the spiritual realm, it will have eternally deadly and damning consequences for the souls that embrace it. We understand in our world that deception will go on. The heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all things, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17.9. And so it does not surprise us that the world would be a place of deception, that it would be a place where lies seem to be accepted as truth, and truth goes by the wayside as if it is a lie. But when it gets into the church, that becomes a huge and uh, troublesome spiritual problem. Just by way of uh, illustration, I was reminded of this recently as I was reading, and I was reminded of something that I read some years ago uh, from the news reporter Paul Harvey. Some of you may remember that name, Paul Harvey. He's gone now. He, he's uh, passed on, but he did the the unusual news. He I like to listen to him because he did the news that normal news wasn't doing. Now even normal news doesn't do the normal news. But he was doing the unusual news around the world, and he gave always at the end what he called, now that's the rest of the story. And I was was intrigued by a story that he gave some time ago about how Eskimos hunt and kill wolves. I've shared this in the past, and some of you may remember uh, what I shared, but what Eskimos do in their hunt to kill wolves, what they will do is they will coat a knife with blood, some kind of animal blood, and then they will let it freeze on the knife blade. And then they will add another coat of that blood and let it freeze and add another coat and let it freeze and and do that several times until the blade is covered with several layers of blood. And then they will take that Razor sharp knife, and they will go out into the tundra of Alaska and they will bury that knife with its blade showing in the tundra and just let it sit there. 
And soon the wolves will catch the scent of blood and they will come and they will begin to lick the blood from the blade. And the more vigorously they lick, the more the blade becomes exposed from the blood and the more and more they lick, they taste the blood. And because they taste the blood, they lick even more vigorously than they had at the start. And what is fascinating about all of that is that because of the cold, the wolf never notices that the blade has already severely shredded his tongue And the wolf's craving for blood is so great that they continue to lick the blade until they bleed to death. And I was thinking about and thinking about this whole idea of deception. The wolf has been deceived into swallowing his own life. And I think that is the subtle danger of deception when we think about it. Because deception tastes good. Deception at times, and most oftentimes, is dressed up to look very good. It's looked, it, it, it's to not taste bad when you come around it. In fact, it seems like it's helping you. It seems like, like the wolf, this is something that's going to extend my life, that's going to help my life, that's going to continue my life, but all it is doing, it is it's killing you. All deception does is it kills those who have been taken by it. And I think that picture of how the Eskimos hunt for wolves is a, is a vivid picture for us of the danger of deception, especially when it creeps into the church by way of some kind of spurious doctrine that comes along. Some kind of lie that creeps in unawares. And sadly, the unsuspecting in the church far too often lick it up to their eternal death. And so the question for us this morning is this, what is the remedy? What is the remedy? How how can you and I as Christians be protected from being drawn into this bait trap? How can we be protected from not taking the bait? How can we be ready, as Paul has exhorted the believers in Colossae, how can we be ready when the kidnappers come so that we are not taken captive, as he says in verse 8 of chapter 2, so that we're not snatched up by the deception of the philosophies of men, the empty deception that's according to the traditions of men. And this morning, I want us to turn our attention for that remedy to Colossians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 4. Because it's here that the Apostle Paul gives us, I believe, at least the starting point, the launching point for the remedy against deception. And in our study of both Jude and then when we moved into Revelation and talked about the churches and the effect upon the churches when it comes to apostasy, and then here into Colossians, into this whole reality of what's, what's needful for protection, and that is by way of even times our own energy, right? We are to see to it that we're not taken captive. 
So we've already been warned about deception. We've already been warned about the falsity of teaching and the falsity of the practice. And those two go hand in hand in those who deny the sufficient reality of Christ, that Christ is sufficient for all of life and godliness. And now Paul's going to bring all that doctrine together in a practical way. I was thinking about this. Do you ever find it difficult to put into practice what you already know to be true from Scripture in your Christian living? you ever find it difficult as a Christian? You know what the Bible says. You, you, you hear it a lot. Right? You're, you, you listen to the radio, you do Bible studies, you're in discipleship relationships, you're, you're hearing the preaching at the church and these kinds of things, and you know what to believe, but often there's a disconnect between what you know and practicing it out in your life. We know the right doctrine, but we don't seem to know how to make it practical. We don't seem to get the reality that, that this has to be worked out in our lives. And we, we, we may know that intellectually, but we don't know where to begin. How do I put all of this knowledge that I have to work in my life? Well, Paul, I think, begins to tell the Colossian believers, and of course us, as we're here studying this this morning, Paul begins to tell us that in chapter 3. And the exhortations, if we were to, to continue in our study through this book of Colossians, particularly in the chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul begins in a general fashion, in a general nature, what, what we're hearing about this morning is this launching point, if you will. And then as you go further in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he gets more specific as to putting these things into practice. We're going to have to leave that to your own study. You're going to have to go back and and into Colossians and look at chapter 3 from verse 5 and following all the way through chapter 4 because we're just looking at this launching point almost as an exclamation point, if you will, on our study of the effects of apostasy that we began several months ago in Jude. So I'll just encourage you to go back to your to the study in Colossians and do that, or even go back several years ago and get the messages on those passages that we taught here um, when we were studying Colossians. But let me read this passage for us this morning, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, by way of reminder to us. The Apostle Paul says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, chapter 3, verse 1, Then keep seeking things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Now before we begin to look at that more intently, just a, just a side note by way of your own Bible study as you're reading the scriptures, it is profitable for us at times to put our very name there in that text. When you read that text, personalize that with your very name. If you, Terry, have been raised up with Christ, then you, Terry, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, that makes it personal. 
God's talking to me. God is exhorting me. I'm not hearing voices. I'm not having an impression that, I, that I'm defining as something from God when it may not be. God, in His Word, as I read His Word, is speaking to me personally. Personalize that when you read it. These are exhortations for us. Now, you've probably heard this statement in the past, usually used in a derogatory and degrading kind of way, but it's said this way, speaking of someone else, oh, that person over there, they are so heavenly, or they are so earthly minded that they are no heavenly what? Good. They're so earthly minded that they're just no heavenly good. Well, Paul would say that's the opposite of what it should be. In fact, according to Scripture, we will never be any earthly good until we are first heavenly minded. We will never be any earthly good unless we are first heavenly minded. Why? Because it is only when we rise out of the world's philosophies that we will be able to recognize that deception or what deception is. It isn't until you and I rise above and out of the philosophies of the world around us that you and I will ever be able to recognize what deception actually is, let alone from that to fix our minds on heavenly realities. Because the things that are most important to us are not to be of this world. They are to be of the heavenly places. And if we are earthly minded, we will be of no heavenly good. And so Paul calls on us as Christians to have a preoccupation with our heavenly reality. And I think this is the reason we fail oftentimes to have victory over sin in our life. The reason we get caught in the traps of deception, the reason that you and I at times as Christians actually fear sharing the gospel with someone, the reason that we far too often grumble about the circumstances that God brings about in our life because He's sovereign over all things, is simply because far too often this side of heaven, we are far more earthly minded than we are heavenly minded. And so Paul gives us here, in the first four verses of chapter 3, he gives us four features that will help each one of us appropriate the power of heavenly living here on earth. We have the Spirit in us. We have all the the necessary uh, motivation because we have the Spirit within us. But these are four features that help us appropriate that or put that into action. And Paul lists these features for us. And I'll just kind of give us an outline and then we can walk through them. These are the four features, right? Our outward aspiration, verse 1. Our outward aspiration. Number two, our inward attention. Our inward attention, verse 2. Number three, our past appreciation, which is in verse three. And then lastly, the fourth, our future anticipation. So we have our aspiration, our attention, 
our appreciation, and our anticipation. These are the four features that lay the groundwork for remedying being caught by deception. Because deception, as we know, is a reality. But if we follow these, if we do what Paul is saying, if we do what God is exhorting us to do here through the Apostle Paul, we will do what we have been exhorted to do in verse 8. We will not be taken captive. We will have seen to it that we're not taken captive by the philosophies of men. So let's look at this first feature. Feature number one, our outward aspiration. Notice verse 1. Paul says, if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, as we begin, I I don't want us to be confused in any kind of way in our thinking because Paul here, as he writes this, isn't wondering uh, if those to whom he is writing is if they're actually saved. Paul's writing to Christians, genuine Christians. He isn't saying this in kind of a question form where he's saying, listen, I'm not quite sure if you've been saved, and if you have been saved, then you should have this in your life. As if to question they know Christ. He's not writing that way. What Paul is talking about is actual reality. They are saved. He's not talking about a possibility for them. And I think the New International Version, which isn't always the best translation in my mind, but the New International Version does a great job here because it uses the word since. Since at the beginning instead of if. And that I think is better. At least I think it's more clear to us as English speakers that Paul is saying, in other words, since then you have been raised up with Christ. In other words, it's a done deal. Since that has happened to you, then this is how you ought to be. This ought to be true of you. In other words, there is no doubt as to whether Christ has been raised there is no doubt that through faith you were included in that resurrection. It happened. And the results of that resurrection are ongoing. In other words, they don't stop. It wasn't just for the moment when Christ was raised from the dead and then it stopped. It's ongoing. It has ongoing ramifications for all of life. It's an accomplished fact. And each and every one of us who knows Jesus Christ by faith we have not only entered into death with Christ, but we have also entered into His life, and that life came by way of His resurrection. And so this is what Paul says. Since that is who you are now, that's the idea. Everything he's talked about in the first two chapters already. Since that's true of you now, then pursue now the things of Christ. Listen, here is sometimes the deception that we buy into. Here's what happens to us. Right? We believe in Jesus. We know that He's alive through the resurrection. That's intellectual understanding that we have. But for some reason, for some reason, we live in the deception that we have not been made new in Christ through the resurrection. That yes, I believe in Jesus, I believe He's been raised from the dead, but somehow there's a disconnection that what happened with Christ seemingly has no effect on me. 
other than maybe a future event that someday I'm going to be with Jesus, but right now it doesn't seem to affect me. And because of that belief, we can go on about living under the slavery and under the power of the same old difficulties, the same old struggles, the same old things that beleaguered our old self will beleaguer us now because we somehow have divorced ourselves from the reality that we are in Christ. We are secure in Christ. And therefore, because of that, we lack victories as we walk through our Christian life. We buy the lie, we buy the lie that we just can't win over sin. We just can have victory over that sin that seems to beleaguer my life. That sin that seems... Because when I do that, I'm saying that Christ isn't sufficient. That when I got saved, there there was enough to get me into glory someday, but there's not enough for now. There's not anything for now to have victory over the sin that so simultaneously seems to plague me. I was thinking of this the other day. It's... It's rather ridiculous. It's as ridiculous to think like that as it is to think that here you got your life and and someone comes into your life through some undeserved uh, gift upon you, given to you. He comes and he completely pays off your mortgage. Pays off your mortgage. You you, You have no mortgage anymore and you learn of it. You learn of it, you, you say, oh, that's great, I believe that, you're so thankful for it. And then the next month comes around and you make your mortgage payment as if it never been paid. If somebody told you that in, in life today, you'd go, that's stupid. Why in the world would you do that? You don't have a mortgage. Well, beloved, that's what we do when we don't exercise an understanding that we are alive in Christ. There's no need for it anymore. There's no need to live under that sin. We were liberated from the debt, just like the mortgage. We were liberated. We have a new life. See, that's what we have in Christ. That's how free we are in Christ when it comes to sin. We have been resurrected. And since, Paul says, you have that reality, you've been made alive with Christ, since you have been raised up with Christ, then your outward aspiration is to be what? Keep seeking the things above. Because you are alive in Christ, because just as Christ was raised, you've been raised, then here's your outward aspirations. In other words, be preoccupied now in your life with all of the eternal realities that, were, that are yours as a believer in Christ. It's the preoccupation with heaven that should govern all of our earthly responses. Now, I want us to be aware here in verse 1 particularly that the emphasis in in that particular verse is not on the seeking. The emphasis on that verse is on the object being sought. In other words, we could read it this way. The things that are above be constantly going after. So the emphasis is on the things that are above, not on the striving 
we seek to obtain a lot of things in life. Right? We seek to obtain a, a nice home for ourselves. We seek to have lifestyles and stuff of this earth that make life here comfortable, easy, not hard. And oftentimes, and I would probably say most of the time if we're honest with ourselves, we seek to obtain these much more than we ever seek the things above. Why? Because we've bought the lie. We have bought the lie that these things will bring us a trouble-free life and real happiness. We've actually subtly bought into the lie. And Paul says here that all of that is secondary. All of that is secondary to real life. We are to seek the right treasures. You say, well, what are those treasures? Well, Paul gives specifics as you move through chapter 3. But but we'll just suffice it to say this in summary. Paul is saying, listen, here's the greatest treasure, Christ-likeness. Being like Christ. That is to be our aspiration. Notice just by the way, go over to a little farther in chapter 3. We get a glimpse of this really in, in direct uh, uh, words from Paul in verse 12. But notice what he says beginning in verse 6. Right? He talks about the issues of idolatry in verse 5, these kinds of things, the things of the flesh, where it's on account of these in verse 6 that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. And he gives a list of things, right? Anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie. That, that, that means stop lying to one another. Stop telling Things that aren't true, since you laid aside the old self with all its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed in the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, who created us, Christ did. In him all things were made, and by him all things were made. We are created in the image of the one who created us. A renewal which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. So all of these, these racial lines have been erased. All of these cultural lines, these religious lines, these social lines that are all dividing humanity in our day. All that in Christ are gone. And so, he says, verse 12, as those who have been chosen of God, that's just another way of saying as those who are saved by faith in Christ, And the proof that you are saved by faith in Christ is a proof that God chose you because no one gets saved without God's election. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on then, here it is, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Christ-likeness. That's exactly what Christ is. Christ is gentle and compassionate, full of humility, patience, kindness. He bears with us. He forgave us. This is to be our aspiration. We're to have a deliberate, 
preoccupation with the things that will affect our lives spiritually and morally. Those things that will affect our our corporate testimony as a church, as believers in the body of Christ here at Fellowship Bible Church. We're to have a preoccupation with that. What will affect my testimony? It's that pursuit that will deliver us from the deceptive doctrines of the world that creep into the church. When we pursue Christ's likeness, that will keep us from the frivolity that's so easily rampant. We are to be preoccupied with the things above. To be preoccupied with the things above is to be preoccupied with Christ. Be preoccupied with Christ. To be preoccupied with His purposes. Be preoccupied with His plans. Far too often, far too often, we are so preoccupied with the world and its ways and the things of the world that we just can't see Christ anymore. We're so preoccupied with that stuff, Christ isn't even visible. He's there. He's in our lives. We haven't lost our salvation, but underneath all of that worldly stuff that we let in, that's where He is. The mundane things of this life shrink when they're compared to the satisfaction I have in Christ. They're nothing. Listen to Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. You're everything to me in the glories of heaven, and here nothing do I have means anything other than you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the hope of us. This is the hope of us who believe in Jesus Christ. We are heavenly citizens, as Philippians says. Philippians 3 tells us. The resurrection is the foundation of that. That's why Paul begins here. So, since you have been raised up. So if we're going to have our hearts filled with the things of Christ, with the discipline of Christ-likeness and godliness, when that happens, you know what's going to happen? If you fill your life with the pursuit of all of those kind of things, with the pursuit of Christ-likeness, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have no room for the deceptions of the world. There'll be no room. Those things that come and tempt your flesh away from the things of God, you won't have any room for that. Why? Because you're so filled with Christ. The things of Christ, the pursuit of Christ. That's the true solution. That's the beginning place to not be taken captive. This outward aspiration toward Christ. We, We can never believe the lie that if we are preoccupied with the things above that somehow, somehow we're going to be chasing something that doesn't satisfy. People come along and say, oh yeah, it's good for you, but no, not me. And we start to think, well, gosh, you know, we we get in the mindset almost of Psalm 73 where, where Asaph was going, hey, what's the matter? I do all this good stuff and all the world who's not doing any of that is seems to be prospering. And then he says, but then I saw their end and I realized See, when we get preoccupied with the things above and we're not being deceived by the illusion out there in the world, we have no time for that stuff. Why? Because Christ is alive. 
He's in the place of power. He's at the right hand of God the Father. But Paul says, keep sinking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So we can be assured of the fact that our exalted Lord has both the position and the power to bestow on us whatever is needed. Let me say that again. He has the position and the power to give us whatever is needed. So the first piece of the remedy is the aspiration for Christ likeness. He knows what we need. He only gives what we need. He gives what is best for our good and His glory, and therefore we can seek to be just like Him. That's the first feature, our aspiration. The second feature is this, our inward attention. Our inward attention. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. So this is how we acquire, how we, how we accomplish, I should say, our outward aspiration, right? We have an aspiration to set our mind, keep seeking the things above. Well, how do I do that? Well, we pay attention, right? We set our minds, Paul says, on the things above. You want to aspire to the things of Christ's likeness? Well, you're not going to do that without setting your mind on the things above. What does that mean? Well, it means to ponder those things, to, 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 to think about the heavenly things, to direct our attention upon them, to set our minds resolutely on them. In other words, to continually have this as our inner disposition, to have this as our drive in life. To direct our attention to the things above. It's this internal spiritual compass, if you will. You take out a compass now, you hold it up, it always points to true north if it's not a broken compass. That's our heart. we're, We're to have a heart oriented to the things above where Christ is seated with the Father. I was reading recently, one author said it this way, in order to seek heaven, we must think heaven. I like that. In order for us to seek heaven, we have to think heaven. The reason we get so deceived, the reason we get sucked in at times to the lies about Christ and and really convince ourselves that He isn't sufficient and the schemes of Satan simply come around and trip us up because our attention is not one of thinking on the things of heaven. We're not thinking about the things of Christ. You say, well, how do I do that? How do I do that continuously? The way to do that is to have your mind controlled by the Word of God. You want to think of the things of heaven? Then go to heavenly words and fill your mind with heavenly words, and that is the Word of God. This is where we get tripped up. Too many times, too many Christians, too many of us follow the wisdom of the world. We don't know what the Bible says. And even worse than that, at times, we don't care what it says. Why? Because we don't want to know what it says. Because if I know what it says and I know what it means by what it says, that means I'm going to have to change what I'm doing and I really don't want to change. All the while, we tacitly say we want to. We tacitly say, yeah, I I really want to get over this, but we definitely don't want to take the effort to do so. And so what do we do? We follow the easy path. We go down the easy road rather than follow what God would have. 
And because our minds are attuned to the philosophies of men rather than the philosophies of the Spirit, what happens? We fail. We fail. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 10. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Why? Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. In fact, it isn't even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, Paul says, verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Okay, what I was describing, Paul says, is not who you actually are. That's the world around you. You are in the Spirit. And if you're in the Spirit, then God dwells in you. And because God dwells in you, you have life. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, then He doesn't belong in you. He is not in you. But if Christ is in you, even though the external physical body is dead because of sin... Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Paul says, listen, our focus is to be on the Word of God and not on the things of the earth. Set your mind on the things above, the godly things. We're not to pursue the things of the world which are passing away. But Paul is saying, listen, this is the positive method of warring against deception in all of its forms. It doesn't matter how it comes. This is the positive method for warring against that. Put on, as Paul said in Romans 13, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Mark this down as your own life. When you're sinning, you're not walking by the Spirit. When you and I choose to sin and we sin willfully, often, that moment we're not walking by the Spirit. Because the Spirit would never do that. So here's the principle. When the values of the Word, when the values of the Word of God dominate your mind, then they will motivate you to godly behavior. When the values of the Word dominate your mind, they will motivate you to godly behavior and they will protect you from lurking deception that's going, hey, come this way. You'll say, no. I already know which way I'm going. Paul says our outward aspiration is Christ-likeness. That's driven by our inward attention to pondering and yearning for the things of godliness, not the things of the world. And then he gives a third feature here in verse 3. Our past appreciation. Our past appreciation. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen, that's the reason. There, there's, there, now we're boiling it down even farther. We're condensing this down. Here's, here's now the foundation stone, if you will, of why we can do verses 1 and 2. Why we can 
we can seek the things above and set our mind on things above is because this reason, our past appreciation, right? This is to be the norm for each and every one of us who have died and risen with Christ by faith. We are to appreciate the fact that we have died to this world system. And therefore, we have been identified now with Christ. Paul says, you have died. The penalty for our sin has been paid for on the cross. Remember chapter 2, verse 14? The certificate of debt is canceled. The decrees against us and which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the payment was paid by Christ on the cross. Wages of sin was death, but, but we don't have to pay that wage. Christ paid it. So Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, I'm a new creature where? In Christ. I'm a new creature in Christ. Yeah, you're seeing a lot of oldness, but I'm a new creature in Christ. The old things passed away. They're dead. They're gone. Behold, new things have come. So notice, beloved, that not only have we died with Christ, Paul says, for you have died, that's died with Christ, but notice also our life is hidden with Christ in God. You know what that means? That means as a Christian, you are kept eternally safe. You're kept safe. Why? Because you are in Christ, which means you are in God. And therefore, you can have an assured hope of heaven. Do you appreciate that at all as a Christian? Do you, do you think about that? Do you revel with that? Do you appreciate that? We're to appreciate that. John 5, verse 21 to 24 says this, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Now get this, for not even the Father judges anyone. Not even the Father judges anyone. Why? He has given all judgment to the Son. Why? In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. That's a frightening reality, isn't it? People go around and say, yeah, I believe in God, but Jesus, I uh, set him aside. I, I really don't think he's anything. Yeah, he was a good man, a good prophet. He, he, yeah, he helped some people. He was philanthropic in his day, but he wasn't God. And yet here is John in John chapter 5 saying, listen, you can't separate them. You have Christ, you have God. You cannot have one without the other. He who doesn't honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. John says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, this is Jesus talking, he who hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. And they do not come into judgment because they have passed out of death into life. Beloved, that means our salvation cannot be lost. 
If you are in Christ, since you have been raised up with Christ, you are secure in God, Paul says. I'm not sure, you know, oftentimes we go to to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, right? When we were studying that, I, I, I hit it pretty hard because it's so necessary for us to remember there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow, there's no condemnation. I'm not sure Paul could have said it any stronger than he says it right here in verse 3. You are in God through Christ. And then he wondered that the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through, get this, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, it's undefiled, it will not fade away, it's reserved in heaven for you. Who is the who that it's, that it's for? It's for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. Listen, it is the continual remembrance of the resurrection that motivates us to live pure lives right now. The continual remembrance that we have died and our life, we are alive. Those two words don't even seem to go together. When someone dies in this life, there is no life. Their physical body is not living. It is not animated. And yet here Paul says, for we have died and your life. That's implying there's a resurrection that took place. That resurrection happened when Christ was raised. We have died. We have been hidden in Christ, in God. When we remember that, that motivates us to pure living and protects us from deception. Because that says Christ is sufficient. Nothing can remove us from the love of God. Do you realize that? As bad and as sick as our sinful heart still is that we battle against every day, even though we're alive in Christ, we can never sin our way out of salvation. When you know Christ, when you are saved by Christ, you cannot sin your way out of salvation. And the reality is you won't want to because God's the one holding you. And since we know that we have been raised up with Christ because He lives, then we can live with full assurance, full assurance and hope that there is no condemnation for me. Oh, what a precious thought that is. I know you're sitting there this morning, you're saying to yourself, man, but I've sinned this morning. I mean, my feet barely touched the floor out of the bed and I had bad thoughts in my mind. Some of you us are saying, I had sinful things going on, irritations. I was remembering these things and bitterness was in my heart and I was being challenged by this. And man, how can I be one of God's children? Well, I can tell you this, you can't be one of God's children if you think that by doing righteous things, you'll be one of God's children. You're God's children because God saved you in Christ and you're secure in Christ, in God. There is no condemnation. Run to Christ. So Paul has given us the three features. 
There's a fourth final protecting feature, right? And that is our future anticipation, our future anticipation. We aspire, we pay attention, we appreciate what he's done, and then we anticipate. Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Praise God for that. The earth is not our home. But Paul says, this is not your place. We must keep anticipating the time when Christ will return and when Christ will be revealed to the world again and we will be revealed with him. The world might look at you and say, you're just a hypocrite. Oh, you talk big, you say big words, but I know your life. Sure, you don't do everything perfectly. You know what? That's true. It's all true. But God is making me like His Son. And one day, it will show forth what it really is. When He is revealed. So what specifically are we anticipating when it says here, you look forward to these things, right? We anticipate. Let me just give you two things. Two things we anticipate. We anticipate the full revealing of us as God's children. People throw accusations our way. We say, yeah, that's all true. But here's what God's word says. First John chapter two, verse 28 and 29. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. There's going to be a full revealing one day. All of it's coming out. When Christ is revealed, we'll be revealed. So we don't want to shrink away. We don't want to go around practicing sin and foolishness. And so when Christ reveals, we go, gosh, I wish I wasn't doing that. That's the first thing. We anticipate the full revealing, the full uncovering. But also we anticipate the reward to come. The reward to come. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. I love that. I love that. You know what the essence of the good fight was and the essence of the finished course was? Paul tells us, he doesn't say, well, I did this, I, had, I held this many Bible studies, I preached in this many churches, I, I, I evangelized this many people, you know, I got a lot of numbers, here's how many people got saved because I evangelized them, and all of these kind of effort kind of things. He said, no, what it is, is I've kept the faith. I've continued to believe that God is who He says He is, and what He says is true and right, and I followed it. I kept the faith. So in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. That's keeping the faith, loving His appearing. Anticipate when He's revealed Paul said to the leaders at the church, 
First Peter chapter five, Peter said this, first Peter chapter five, verse four. And when Christ, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Beloved, this is the foundation if we're not going to be taken captive. That's the foundation. Right? We can live our lives constantly aspiring to things above because we're continually focusing our attention on the things of God because we continually appreciate that our life is not of this world, but rather that we have died with Christ to sin and have been raised to life through the resurrection. Our life is hidden and safe with Christ in God, and therefore we can have the hope of a future and anxiously anticipate Christ's imminent return. Christ is the source. He is the, the sustenance and the summation of all of the Christian life. It isn't merely that He gives us life, but rather because He is our life. He is our life. The world today can't comprehend the nature of our life in Christ. They have no concept of that. They don't understand any of it. In fact, if they came on and, and heard this today as a, as a person who, who's denying God, if God didn't touch their hearts, they go, this guy's a whack job. What's he talking about? But we understand. The world might try to understand and they may try to understand the fact, the reality, which they know inside that they suppress, the reality that they one day will face the judge, and they try to attempt to get through that through some kind of work, some kind of worldly philosophy that they follow, but it'll never work. It'll never work. They're deceived. Paul says, I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be taken captive. And you won't be deceived into thinking that you can be righteous in some other kind of way when the only remedy is Christ. The only remedy is to fix our thoughts and efforts on the things of Christ. Remember our past away from Christ and our glorious future with Christ. Paul said in verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Because all of those things amount to idolatry. They're just the worship of self and not the worship of God. So, let's center in on Christ. Let's center in on Christ. Because He's the only remedy for deception. The only remedy. Let's pray. Father, it's been wonderful this morning to be reminded of these truths. Lord, we sit here this morning and many of us, I'm sure, are thinking about our own life and how we are living. Challenged by what you have said to us. We are grateful that in Christ we have forgiveness. 
For if you had not offered forgiveness in and through Christ, we would have no hope. And yet you have given us everything we need for life and for godliness. We know your word tells us that. Help us to trust that. Lord, may we trust it all the more as we seek the things above. As we set our minds, saturating them with the word from above. Your word. Remembering that we were once alienated from you, strangers in the world without God, without hope, and you saved us. So we look forward to that day when you will come and we will have the full revelation right before us and the reward will be handed out. And wonder of all wonders, we'll take that and return it to you that you might be glorified in all things. What a joy. What a privilege. Thank you for protecting us in this way. Use it now in our lives, this day and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.